0: Call Art Bell toll-free west of the Rockies at 1-800-618-8255, 1-800-618-8255. East of the Rockies at 1-800-825-5033, 1-800-825-5033. This is the CBC Radio Network. It
1: is indeed. Good morning, everybody. Dr. Edgar Mitchell, Apollo 14 astronaut, with us in a moment. All right, uh, now we go to Florida, and that's where Dr. Edgar Mitchell is. Dr. Mitchell, welcome to the program. Well, good morning, Art. Thank it you. Is, it is really an honor to have you on the show. Well, thank you. I'm pleased to be here. Um, good. Uh, I've got a million questions, which probably are dumb. Everybody asks astronauts these questions, but I've got to do it because I've never heard the answers.
2: We'll give you the first 100,000 or so. Yeah,
1: all right. All um, right.
2: How did you get picked
1: uh, to be in the Apollo program? I guess that's a good place to begin.
2: Well, I kind of made it my business from 1957 on, after Sputnik went up. I recognized that humans were probably right behind robot spacecraft, and I wanted to go along, so I started working on on my credentials in 1957, even before there were manned flight uh, much more than a dream. It took me nine years, uh, adding to my test pilot credentials, getting a Ph.D. from MIT, and uh, being involved in space development uh, with the military.
1: So it's sort of like you had a list, or you knew what the right stuff was going to be, or was going to require, and you, you began fulfilling it.
2: That's kind of right. I didn't quite exactly know about it. I just kept adding credentials and uh, qualifications and hoping that sooner or later they couldn't ignore me any longer, which turned out to be true. Uh, by 1990s, 1966
1: alright well most people today because all of this occurred so long ago have forgotten a lot about it mm-hmm. what reminded them about it all was Apollo 13 that's true of course and uh, would would you say uh, to the best of your knowledge that Apollo 13 minus a little bit of dramatic license was
2: fairly correct oh yes there was very little dramatic license uh, in, Apollo, in the movie Apollo 13 uh, they did a marvelous job of keeping it right on track and uh, uh, very very true to to actually what happened
1: All right, Uh, bearing that in mind and with a lot of people who've seen 13, the movie um, going on 14 uh, must have been a bit of a even though I'm sure by then you were uh, all locked into it and ready still in the back of your mind uh, with Apollo 13 just having occurred You must have worried that a similar thing could have occurred.
2: On the contrary, uh, took the position, hey, we've really gone over the spacecraft with a fine tooth comb, the likelihood of something, of lightning striking twice in the same place is pretty small. Uh, At least it's nice consolation whether it's true or not. Uh, Mathematically true is another matter, but it's nice consolation. (laughs) The main problem was don't screw up. We we really... uh, we were under the gun to fly a good mission and so uh, to ourselves don't mess up Uh, do it right Mm
1: -hmm. Um, I guess my simple little question was and it is a simple question when you got to the moon when you got on the moon Mm -hmm. was it fun? fun? oh sure Sure. (laughs) I mean was there time in between everything you had to do to just you know sort of feel the experience for yourself and have fun.
2: No, there wasn't time. Any moment that you uh, took to do that was very brief, stolen. Uh, the, the clock did not permit that time. But of course, Alan Shepard took the time to hit a golf ball. Yes, he did. I took the time to throw a javelin further than his golf ball. And uh, How far did your javelin go? Well, both of them went out there. Uh, <laughs> a, a, a few yards. If we had, uh, been, hadn't had been such cumbersome, tight pressure suits, we could have done a pretty respectable job of throwing things halfway around the moon. But it, uh, those pressure suits were tight and, and uh, stiff and difficult to work with. Was there? Any, they went out there a while. Uh,
1: was there any chance that, uh, should you fall in one of those, you would catch it on a, a rock
2: or a jag it and tear it? There's a possibility. Uh, we were careful with regard to that, uh, watched each other pretty cautiously, uh, you know, kept an eye on each other, worked the buddy system, and tried to make sure we didn't uh, fall on anything really sharp, but it was a remote probability, but it was still there.
1: If something like that had occurred, Mm -hmm. would it be automatically fatal, or would there have been time to do a quick patch job, assuming it wasn't a giant tear, and you'd live through? We had
2: had ways to... uh, Overcome small, small fissures or small holes in the, the suit leaks in the suit uh, for short periods of time. We had a buddy system. We had a, uh, a uh, emergency oxygen supply that could uh, hold up for very small leaks, and that's about all that uh, we really expected to encounter. Were it a massive tear, it'd be it'd be uh, too difficult to uh, to manage. Um. Did you ever have any concern,
1: or did you give any thought to uh, what would have occurred if the LEM had not been able to lift off from the moon? And I wonder how they could have handled that from a PR point of view at Houston. Uh, well, we had about
2: five ways to back up the, uh, the engine ignition and the start sequence. Fortunately, we didn't have to use any of them, but we had several different uh, backups the last of which was to run a jumper cable from the descent stage through the hatch into the ascent stage uh, circuit breaker panel. Uh, so I wondered what would happen when that uh, that uh, cable went snaking out through the, the front door <laughs> as we left it off, but, yes. that was, but we never had to use that one.
1: So, uh, so there wasn't much thought that anything tragic
2: would Well happen. there was a lot of thought, prior thought. Uh, backup of creating backups for things that could go wrong but once you've done that you've done all you can do
1: uh, we went to the moon and went to the moon and went to the moon and now we haven't gone to the moon and it's been 30 years and a lot of people and i'm one of them wonder about that
2: why haven't we been back why haven't men been back the uh, public hasn't supported it
1: So How much, uh, the, the Saturn V, that's what you rode on top of, isn't mm-hmm. it? That was uh, quite an incredible booster. How much thrust did
2: that develop? A little over 7 million pounds, about 7.3 seven million, seven million pounds. 7.3
1: million pounds. It's hard to imagine what it, um, it's like sitting on top, top of a giant
2: firecracker, isn't it? Not yeah, I, I compare it to the uh, vertical subway ride. <laughs>
3: kind of
2: shaking, rattling, and rolling as it was gimbal. G's at that point? Not too many, a little over four. The, the liftoff is re- relatively light. It's the, the emergency reentry that pushes you up to high G loads, potentially mm. up to 16.5 oh, 16 G, G. We practice that, and it's not a comfortable feeling to practice emergency aborts.
1: What is human endurance for G's, roughly?
2: Depends on how you're taking it, transverse G's through the body, like.
1: was there any surprise for you uh, on the moon? Was there anything you found on the moon that you didn't expect to In other words, with that kind of geography, uh, which is hillier than you thought, would that have uh, blocked your view, or did you have a great view to the moon's horizon?
2: We had great views. What I'm talking about is micro-navigation here. Oh, I see. Down to within feet or so. We knew where we were within uh, 10, 15 yards, but uh, not within 10 or 15 feet sometimes, like the geologist wanted us to know.
1: A lot of people uh, thought the early Apollo missions might you know, when the limb came down, it might go sinking into the moon mm-hmm. dust, and there was going to be a great deal of moon dust there. Yep. And
2: a lot of people thought that. Well, there was a great deal of moon dust. It just turned out it, was, uh, it compacted very nicely, and the big uh, uh, pads we had on the, on the bottom of the, of the struts uh, cushioned it very nicely, and we didn't sink in.
1: All right, uh, let me try this one on you. It's a fax. I have several. Uh, regarding your appearance on Dateline, NBC's mm-hmm. Dateline, uh, a few minutes into the interview, if you had missed it, you would have missed the commentator's remark that Dr. Mitchell returned from the moon with a couple of secrets. So, if he's unable or unwilling to cooperate, Richard Hoagland's work—and we'll get to that <laughs> later—I'd like to know if it's true that there are some secrets. uh... I- is there—is there anything, any secret uh... that that you learned that you still are unable to discuss? Absolutely not. No, the
2: secrets he was referring to. Uh... Was a little teaser for the fact that I did that uh, ESP experiment, telepathy experiment. Mm -hmm. Um, But there, I have no classified information or information I can't talk about. Talked about everything I know to talk about regarding the flight.
1: Of course, if you had classified information that you couldn't talk about, then. You couldn't obviously talk couldn't talk about
2: it, right? So. No, but uh, yes, that is true, except for the fact I deny that uh, that's the case. So, said, we were totally over-programmed. We had uh, uh, nothing to hide. Uh, we were to tell the world what we found, and as far as as far as far whatever we saw, we can talk about it.
1: All right. I don't shy away from things. Here's another fact. It mm-hmm. says, don't ask this directly. You may not be able to broach the subject without causing some tension between you and your guest. Um edgar mitchell's company this fact says has been and is still funded by the c i a absolutely untrue absolutely untrue
2: no i uh... if you recall back in the early seventies i did work with uh, at stanford research institute with harold putoff and russell targ and uri geller and all that and i was invited to brief the cia on our results which i did
3: Mm-hmm.
2: uh George Bush was uh, head of the CIA at that time and subsequently a great deal of work was done by CIA on psychic work and uh, very successfully because the Soviets were doing it at that time as well in the Brezhnev area very successfully and as a matter of fact uh much of that work has just been declassified and released to the public within the last few months. It's true. Harold Putoff uh, has written, and Russell Targ both have written several papers uh, just in, this year after 20-some years of secrecy uh, about all of that work, and it was very successful work and very exciting. But as far as funding my company and any of my efforts, no, I've never had one penny of CIA funding.
1: Okay. Uh, you did conduct an ESP experiment, it mm-hmm. is now known. What, uh, what were the results of that experiment?
2: What did you do? Well, the standard sort of test that uh, had been done in the laboratory by J.B. Ryan and other people for 30 years or more, I just simply conducted it in that environment. And I can only quote the results statistically because that's the way it was set up, the probability that chance could have produced our results.
1: 1 in 3000.
2: So it was statistically a significant uh,
1: test. So you had arranged, I guess, with somebody on earth to be receiving and you were four going people. to four people and you were going to send a message. Mm-hmm. Uh what, flight
2: No, I did it four different times. Planned to do it more than that, but I was, had time to do it four different times during my rest period. It took about 7 minutes each time to organize the standard Zinner symbols. In accordance with random numbers selected from uh, a random number table and copied onto my knee pad mm-hmm. and I organized the symbols according to random orientation of the numbers one two three four five, and then simply thought about each symbol in turn for fifteen seconds
1: and and the result was uh that uh, it it would have been one in three thousand it could have been that chance could have produced that
2: result that result
1: um that's incredible. Yeah, uh, it, was,
2: it was very significant. It was quite in keeping with what scientists had found in the laboratory for 30 years or more. Did
1: NASA know you were going to do that?
2: No, they did not.
1: Had they known, would
2: they have been happy? Not particularly.
1: No. <laughs> uh How did uh, you decide to concoct that experiment?
2: Well, as I uh, tell in my book that's coming out, I had... Uh, been in discussion with some other, with some medical people, as a matter of fact, mm-hmm. who were very good scientists and who were frustrated with the um, establishment's lack of interest in these human capabilities. And it seemed like too good an, ex- uh, too good an opportunity to pass up, <laughs> because no one had ever been able to conduct an experiment over those distances. Now, it's a simple experiment. It didn't show a lot because one set of experiments is never enough but uh, it was indicative and um, the only problem with it only problem was that it, it got broken to the press before we were ready to and before we had had chance to uh, analyze the results and do it in a thoroughly scientific uh, proper way care to say how it got out the um, one of our persons involved in it uh, who happened to have been a professional psychic uh, couldn't contain himself, got too excited, and leaked it to the press.
1: <laughs> I see. Um, all right. Let me jump to something else here. You, um, on Dateline, virtually suggested that you think, your opinion, it's always safe to say that, mm-hmm. is that uh, there was really perhaps a, cro- a crash in 1947 in Roswell and that it uh... has been covered up. Is that roughly accurate?
2: Yeah, that's pretty accurate. I, uh, let me give a little background. I. Uh, lived in Roswell at the time but I was too young of course to be know much about that incident although it was not too far from my parents' ranch interestingly enough and also as I point out in my book uh, Robert Goddard lived right down down the road from where I grew up Mm -hmm. in Roswell walked past his house on the way to school every day Um, so the Roswell area is of interest to me I have I remember that incident vaguely remember the headlines and and didn't think much about it at the time when it was uh, said well it's just a weather bullet but the subsequent events and the people who have come forth uh, in later years saying that they were told to keep quiet but they don't want to keep quiet anymore uh, and the many many investigations of it suggest that there's really more to it than
1: I think there's in the order of about 130 witnesses.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of people. There's a lot of people, yes. And many of them now in the later stage of their life saying, we really don't want to go to our, our grave uh, uh, with this misinformation now.
0: Um,
1: there are a lot of people who would say the same thing about you. In other words, mm-hmm. that you wouldn't want to go to your grave with secrets about the moon. Now, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not going to beat this to death, but I'm going to ask you, please Um, do, ask it directly Richard Hoagland claims that there are great glass structures Mm -hmm. uh, on the moon and he presents photographs including one, I might add of you on the moon in which he claims uh, reflections in your visor are showing things that were in front of you that uh, you have not admitted were there Mm
2: -hmm. well, I will uh, refer the, the kindest thing that can be said is what the uh, Washington Post said, uh, green cheese and bologna. It simply is not true. Simply that's, not true. That's pseudoscience. It's just not.
1: Stay right there. Take a break. It'll be about four or five minutes. We'll be back with more. Apollo 14 astronaut Dr. Edgar Mitchell is our guest. And he's written a book. Get a pencil. Get a paper. Because he's going to offer you an opportunity to get an autographed copy of his book. Dedicated autographed copy. You'll never get that chance again. We'll be right back.
0: the wildcard line at 702-727-1295. That's 702-727-1295. First time callers can reach Art Bell at 702-727-1222. 702-727-1222. Now, here again, Art Bell.
1: Once again, here I am. Good morning, everybody. Back to Apollo 14 astronaut Dr. Edgar Mitchell in a moment. All right, back now to Florida, and my guest, Dr. Edgar Mitchell, Apollo 14 astronaut. Uh, Doctor, this uh, question does not relate to you because of the nature of your crew on Apollo 14, so don't take it that way, but one day if America is to ever, uh, or any nation on this globe, I guess, is ever to launch a, a spacecraft to elsewhere, truly to elsewhere, beyond our system, uh, in what will be a very long space flight, there may have to be generations, literally, of people to accomplish that fact. Unless we can start moving a lot faster than light. Um, toward that end, I would think that NASA would have, but wouldn't talk about, a great interest in whether it would be possible to procreate in space, mm-hmm. uh, or the nature of procreation, and that leads to whether there's ever been sex in space. And we talked about that one night, and you seem like person person to ask uh, do you think there has been
2: I can't answer that from definitive knowledge I understand. Uh, but, but sooner, sooner or later there's going to be uh, uh, there may very well have been but uh, I don't know of any official experiment for that Uh there there may yeah, be a, just an extension of what aviators always talked about, the mile-high club. I mean, you're just getting up there 100 miles high. That's all. I think it would be
1: irresistible, wouldn't you? Yeah. Uh, and there must be a file in the back of somebody's file drawer about that. I mean, it, it is, a, a, at the same time, an interesting question, a fun question, and a question that is very serious, or could sure. potentially be very serious. Well, sure.
2: we we certainly need to consider it, because, as you point out, long-distance space flight, it can take years and years, even though, by the way, it's a matter of interest, there's a lot of work going on at the moment to modify, learn to modify the basic characteristics of uh, local space in order to change the speed of light. So locally, one could exceed the speed of light. Uh, Wait a minute. Not really exceed the speed of light, but but it would appear that one is exceeding the speed of light. Is this
1: a theory that embraces uh, virtually folding, sort of folding... Uh, Space so that you, in effect, mm-hmm. jump from point to point.
2: No, that's uh, that is the uh, wormholes or tunneling tunneling approach. No, this is uh, goes right to the very definition of what is the speed of light, and it's the electrical and a magnetic permea- It's associated with the electric magnetic permeability of the uh, of the medium. And if you can modify that, then you could modify the apparent speed of light. But it's very far out. There's just a few papers been written on it, and it's being looked at at this point. But it holds some promise uh, from a from a scientific point of view. Very, very hard-nosed uh, approach to
1: it. All right. One of the things uh, that Richard Hoagland may not be so far out on, and that you may wish to comment on is he talks about a new type of physics that seems to sound a lot like what Tesla uh, worked on, that <clears throat> that seems to relate to something you've talked about, this zero-point energy. Yeah. Well,
2: I, let's not I give open credit for that. But it's Sure, it's closer, much closer to Tesla's work, but a number of physicists, including Helmut Puthoff, whom I'm very close to, Tom Bearden, Others have been working with zero point field concepts, and I was just discussing what I was just discussing comes out of zero point field work. Mm. Uh, uh, That the zero point field is the underlying quantum field of quantum fluctuations that supports all matter. And in space, you'd call it the the, um, why am I blocking? It's it's space energy. It's. uh,
1: it's energy that's all around us. All around us,
2: everywhere. And it is the fundamental fluctuation that's left over if you were to reduce uh, space to, well, space is zero degrees Celsius. It's the uh, quantum fluctuations that remain at zero degrees Celsius. Or you could also say it's a source of the Big Bang. It was there, and the Big Bang arose out of a zero point field.
1: Um, does it seem likely to you, Doctor, that, uh, A, that the Big Bang is the is the correct theory?
2: Well, all the evidence, it gets stronger and stronger and stronger the more you look at it, that there's something like the Big Bang. The problem is not with the Big Bang itself. It's with what happens in the first few nanoseconds of, mm. um, of the event and defining precisely uh, what happens at each instance and they're narrowing in on that but something close to the way the current dis- standard description of the Big Bang did take place if
1: uh, if it's the Big Bang or some modification of the Big mm-hmm. Bang mm-hmm. then doesn't it follow that w- w- if um, Roswell really occurred if there really was a crash at Roswell or there have been others or there are others to visit that any materials gathered would likely frankly be very much like the materials we have here on Earth. In other words, all
2: materials sourced uh, from a common... In my own book, I discuss this at considerable length. What uh, really comes out of it is that uh, the Big Bang tells us that all matter is interconnected in some way. And this comes out of an experiment only 12 years ago called the Aspect Experiment uh, or more formally Bell's Theorem, which has been tested and proven to be correct that matter once in connection or correlated with each other remains correlated in some sense and i trace this up to being responsible for what we experience as our inner experience non-locality is the correct term and we experience our esp our intuition our creativity as a result of that very fundamental physical relationship that's that exists in nature, and uh, it always existed in nature, and it's responsible for us having our inner experience the way we have them. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, going to space, going to the moon—was mm-hmm. uh, it at some level a very spiritual experience?
2: What—and this was what uh, got all of this going, as far as I'm concerned. It was the perception. In looking at the cosmos, seeing the stars, seeing the galaxies, seeing the galactic clusters, the profusion of billions and billions and billions of stellar objects uh, with this tiny little Earth set in the midst of it, Hmm. and perceiving that the molecules of my body, of that spacecraft we were in, of each other, of everything around us, were all manufactured in those ancient stars, and that our story about ourselves from science was incomplete and our cosmology about how we came to be from our cultural traditions and our religions was archaic mm-hmm. that we needed a new story and that new story was what is it that makes us conscious what is why is it that we're aware beings like we are and the answer to it to that question is centered around what I have been doing for the last 25 years, um, trying to find what is, what's going on here. Our answers are not complete, but I think after 25 years of working at it, we're getting pretty close to a good answer. And it does involve a zero-point field, it does involve quantum physics, it does involve involve spiritual experience, mystical experience, parapsychological functioning. Uh, All of those things have to be satisfactorily answered if we're to know what it is we are. Do you think it would be more devastating
1: uh, to learn there are others of greater uh, technical capability or more devastating to learn there are not?
2: Oh, more devastating to know there are not. I think it's absolutely wonderful to know, when you first start with the idea, this universe is full of life. It's full of intelligent life the fact that some of it might be a little bit more advanced or happened a little earlier than our civilization uh, seems natural. Uh, If life is throughout the universe, which is quite a different concept than we held 25 or 30 years ago, uh, but now I think that is the case. And if the universe is approximately 15 billion years old or so, give or take a few, uh, it would not be strange that maybe a civilization could be a few million or even a billion or so years older than we are.
1: Do you think we're ready to know that now? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Well, surely many are, and I I would be certain you would be, and I would be, but there was the Brookings report that suggested a great many people in our society would not be ready.
2: I think that's probably true, but not nearly like it was um, uh, 25 years ago. A recent study done by my own institute uh, demonstrates that has broken the demographics down into three different groups called the traditionalists, the moderns, and the postmoderns. And the postmoderns, uh, another name for them is called cultural creatives,
3: mm-hmm.
2: <clears throat> which is the group like you and I are that are looking for new answers, uh, looking for where the future is, not afraid of these ideas. That group has changed from 2% to 24% in the last 20 years. Uh, and is in equal in size in the united states we're talking about the u.s. demographics equal in size to the traditionalist and the uh... moderns or the modern would be your corporate people your uh... materialist scientist uh... the yuppie group and so forth uh, and the cultural creators would be the greens the uh... environmentally sensitive people uh... looking to the future all those groups are now roughly the same size with the cultural creatives increasing and the others decreasing.
1: All right, look, you've got a book, and I, I want to pl- I want to plug it for you. It's called The Way of the Explorer. Can you give us? A, I'll tell everybody how to get the book and stuff in a moment. But can you give <laughs> us an idea of what the Way
2: of the Explorer tells sure. us? We um, I talk a, a bit about the space experience, of course, how I got into all of that, and but most of the book and the the story of. Uh, looking at the universe and being awestruck by what I was experiencing. Uh, But most of it is the research of the last 25 years going into these various topics, mystical experience, parapsychological experience, studying consciousness, how does it relate to our psychology, to our religion, Mm -hmm. to our mystical experience, to our science, uh, and giving my thoughts on it in my work of the last 20-some years. Uh, and coming to a new model called the dyadic model of how it relates how what, all, what does all this mean to us and where does it seem to be taking us in the future and I touch upon the UFO experience a bit the the notion that intelligent life is probably throughout the universe and the real question is have we found each other yet all of these items are touched upon some of them in significant detail and it's kind of the result of my last 27 years of, of research.
3: Um,
2: but it's, it's hung upon a autobiographical story, and the people that have read it say, hey, that's a pretty interesting tale you got there. <laughs> uh,
1: if another group of people from elsewhere had uh, been watching us, or mm-hmm. if we have been observed, then surely those moments when we left our planet in a significant way beyond low-Earth orbit or even uh, geosynchronous orbiting satellites those moments would have been, I would think, of intense interest to somebody else. And so, obviously, the question, did you, uh, en route to the moon or back, see anything at all that was anomalous?
2: No. I wish we had, uh, I mean, these these stories and rumors have been around for years, but uh, I have had no experience, none on our flight, and to my knowledge, no unexplained experience on any of the flights but, uh, in this regard. And yes, it in an evolutionary sense, an extraterrestrial uh, intelligence would be very curious about the evolutionary progress that a civilization they discovered had made, so if we were watching somebody's first steps into space, we'd be intensely curious about it.
1: All right, Um, this is something that had to have been covered by NASA, though you say it didn't happen. Had there been contact, had you seen another craft, met something on the moon, seen something on the moon, what was the protocol? Was there a protocol? There was none. In other words, you guys would just get on the mic and say, hey, Na- hey,
2: Houston, guess what? Yeah, exactly. Because the official position at that point in history, it cannot happen. This doesn't exist. So it wasn't even discussed. Had it happened, it would have been exactly that. Hey, guys, Houston, look what, <laughs> guess what's happened? Really? Yeah. Um, I
1: would have thought uh, there would have been at least some private secret code word or contact or something before you just blurted out, you know, a whole thing out publicly? No, huh?
2: (laughs) Nope. It was considered, (laughs) as far as I'm concerned, considered such a remote event that it wasn't even discussed. Now, did any of us individually think about it? Sure. And say, well, that would have been curious. That would have been nice. (laughs)
1: <laughs> All right, you've got a very, very unusual offer for everybody, and you're going to be inundated. Uh, th- your book, The Way of the Explorer, you're willing to actually autograph, autograph versions for people, and even dedicate them. Is that correct? Sure,
2: sure. Really? Give, give me their name. The name, I'll dedicate it to the person that uh, that uh, sends in me. Sends the money
1: in. All right. It's 35 bucks, right? Right. A special dedicated autograph version. And uh, they would send that $35, I suppose, uh, check money order, that sort of thing. Yeah, check money order cash, whatever. Uh huh. To P.O. Box 6728-6728, Lake Worth, two words, Lake Worth, Florida, zip code 33461. And I'll do that again. Uh, the, book, uh, the title of the book, The Way of the Explorer, Post Office Box 6728, Lake Worth, Florida, 33461. And uh, you know not what you do.
2: Estimate,
1: yeah. Oh, you know not what you do. <laughs> I'm telling you, I wrote a book. I signed uh, autograph versions. You're going to be at this for a long, long time.
2: Thank you for the warning, Art. <laughs>
1: um, you remember 2001? The obelisk, yep. all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you reflect, uh, Doctor, on, on on what it all means or uh, how we came to be, and that's what we're all asking, uh, do you consider that a possibility that, uh, that life here on Earth was, in effect, jump-started one way or the other, obelisk or otherwise, by folks from elsewhere?
2: I doubt if it really started that way. But there's some interesting uh, speculation by, um, uh, well, i think it's blocking his name. It just blocked his name. Uh, he wrote The Twelfth Planet. Um,
1: Zachariah Sitchin, uh, I Z- Z- Zach heard.
2: Sitchin, yeah. thank you. Uh, that says, well, maybe they intervened along the way, and that the the historical, biblical story out of, out of Samaria uh, could very well have been that sort of influence. I would love to have Sitchin's work either confirmed or denied by uh, additional scholarship because it's intriguing, and he makes a very strong case, and uh, it's uh, it's interesting stuff, and it's quite possible. But I, I think we probably originated much like life originated elsewhere, and that the model for that is what I give in my new book as to how that could possibly happen.
1: Uh-huh. Interesting.
2: Um Okay. By, the, by the way, you know, we're also considering doing quite a bit of film work with this. I'm associated with uh, North Tower Films uh, out, out in California. Really? That uh, trying to get some of these ideas down on film because it's a modern modern way to do it and into computers, into multimedia approaches. If any of your int- readers or our listeners are interested in that and in helping getting involved, oh, we could get them involved with that one, too.
1: And they would contact you at the same and
2: Well, no, I've got a number for that. You contact me, but the best thing is to go directly to interested in getting involved, uh, to North Tower Film, which is 415-868-1452. One, four, five, two. Look, looking for uh, funding. We have a very fine producer. Did you see the movie... Uh, uh, who Framed Roger Rabbit? Oh, yes. Oh, it's Robert Watts as a producer.
3: Oh, He's okay. one of the
2: producers. He does a marvelous job. Also did the Indiana Jones series and Star Wars tri- trilogy. He was involved with all of that. So he's a, a marvelous producer that uh, uh, helps do some of our work. And we're we're trying to do some of this some of this work around what's coming out of this this new approach to uh, to science and to mystical approaches.
1: Well, there, there is certainly a lot suddenly happening. Your statements, those that are going to be interestingly made May 7th, which is the date your book is coming out, mm-hmm. I know, by, by uh, Gordon Cooper on Paranormal Borderline, uh, apparently some incredible statements coming. I don't have a full text, but the people that do have told me they're amazing statements. And a lot of people would say the things you have said that Gordon Cooper will say and others uh, are all leading up to something that it's a slow sort of preparation that's the way people feel and that motion pictures are adding to that you know uh, independence day coming up the big movie mm-hmm. the whole thing that all of this is leading uh to a sort of um, crescendo of information when there'll be some big revelation do you think that may be
2: well I, we're in an evolutionary universe this is a major point i'm making we're evolving, we're continuously changing, we're Mm -hmm. continuously innovating and what I believe is happening is that on our Earth evolution is coming under our conscious control and as a result it's a it's a new order of things, it's a new paradigm for the way we operate in other words the future of Earth is in our hands.
1: All right, Doctor, hold it right there that's a good place to hold it. We'll be back following the news at the top of the hour, my guest is Apollo 14 astronaut Dr. Edgar Mitchell? Yes, we will get phone lines open. Stay right there. For now Dr. Edgar Mitchell, in Florida, back once again, Doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, gee, it's great having you here. No, it's nice to
2: talk with you. Enjoying
1: um, it. I've never. I've. I always wanted to talk to somebody who went to the moon and walked on the moon. And, uh, it's exciting to me. I. have wish i guess i will never that's one thing i will never get to do and oh, not necessarily well that that goes to the nature of my question and that okay. is now we're talking about a space station with the russians mm-hmm. and i guess the space program has not gone as aggressively as people like yourself myself might have wished it to where should the space program
2: be going if you had
1: your druthers and money wasn't a problem what would we be doing
2: well, I think we're probably doing a lot of the right things right now, but in due course we will do all of these these things. We will go back to the moon, we will go to Mars, we will go out through the solar system, we will even go beyond the solar system in due course, uh, sometime in the next century or so or beyond. But right now I think we need to get our act together here on Earth. Uh, and the space technology is absolutely marvelous for surveying the Earth, uh, seeing our how to get ourselves better organized here, get, get things pulled together. Uh, it's quite apparent when you look at Earth from space that this thin, thin, thin little biosphere that we have uh, is is rather in jeopardy. You know, we spotted the burning forest, the pollution uh, from space. It's very easy to see, and it's causing people to be very concerned. So getting ourselves organized, recognizing uh, who and what we are, what is our place in the cosmos, making laying our plans for the future is it's an appropriate thing to do now we've only been in space about 30 some years and that's just nothing and we're just really starting to understand what this environment's all about
1: does that overview uh seeing the earth that way cause you to become an environmentalist
2: it certainly causes you to become far to ask questions in a different way and most of the people who have been in space i would say are now if not ardent environmentalist uh, certainly very sensitive to the environmental issues it's very obvious from the space, uh, from the space overview
1: uh, a lot of people have asked this and I've always wanted to a lot of people, doctor, who went to space went to the moon or uh, even in the early mercury program have had terribly troubling lives broken marriages, um, drug or alcohol problems um, just generally have had trouble but I, I would guess, and this is just my guess, that that's true of a lot of test pilots,
2: too, people who live on the edge one way or the other. Is, that, it, the,
1: is that the answer to you? That's think? largely
2: true. Uh, I think the, the NASA program itself in the early days, we had very high family problems just because of the intensity, the dedication. Uh, this idea of going to the moon back in the 60s was so exciting, and people were so dedicated. That uh, the men and women, mostly men in those days, focused on their jobs and families came second. And mm-hmm. that's just not the way you keep a family together. And uh, as a result, we had our casualties. And I think the timbre of the times, as we see in American society in general these times, that uh, we're undergoing a transition. And it has been very difficult on the families themselves. But it's just a part of the times, I believe, and the intensity of this very marvelous program we were a part of. Uh,
1: I want to dispel another rumor, or it's actually more than that. Flying around on the Internet, mm-hmm. this great new information resource we have, there are all these uh, texts, uh, there are a lot of texts of supposed astronaut communications intercepted by amateur radio operators during blackout times about things they mm-hmm. saw, most amazing things. Yep.
2: Um, all baloney. Well, uh, I can't without analyzing them individually. I can't say they're all baloney, but by and large, I would say, uh, in a general statement, yeah, they're all baloney. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, you and uh, uh, Gordon Cooper and others are probably considered within the astronaut corps to be kind of out on the edge yourself. Are you not?
2: Um, in in some ways, yeah. Uh, do you have...
1: do you expect others to come forward and say the kind of things that you've been saying?
2: Well, they have been. Some of them have, perhaps a little more guardedly. Uh, I've kind of made it my business for the last quite a few years to look very carefully, very critically, at many of these frontier concepts to see what validity they had. And we're finding many of them have a certain amount of validity. And as they have validity, you start to find ways to bring them into the body of our knowledge. And when you're a pioneer in that way, as I try to be. Yes, you invite criticism. You invite uh, uh, the the wise nods and Mm -hmm. the shaking of heads and so forth. Yes. Uh, But that just goes with the territory of being an explorer.
1: It does. Neil Armstrong is a good example. I can't give you the exact quote, but he went to the White House, I'm sure you've heard it, and said um, that there are places to go and things to see that will boggle your mind Mm -hmm. or something very close to that.
2: Yeah, and that's quite true.
1: (laughs) Well, that implies... Uh, that implies a knowledge, though, that he has that he can't quite fully or is not willing to quite fully articulate, sort it, of a, a tease.
2: It's probably more not quite able to articulate. I have had exactly that same problem of a, trying to explain what is the inevitable. And uh, that, that has always been the problem between science and our mystical experience. Science wants things precise, uh, well-defined, uh, uh, and with exquisite precision. But most of our human experience doesn't have that precision. It has It's what we feel, it is uh, our reaction to an environment, and there aren't words to properly uh, describe it. If it were, then it wouldn't be such a mystical experience
1: all right well you you have had the ultimate physical experience the mm-hmm. science experience of going to the moon do you think the ultimate answers that man seeks are going to be found in the hard sciences or do you think that we will have to turn
2: inward to find those answers science has to modify itself <clears throat> and it's all centered around uh, one concept it's the first person experience each one of us lives in our skin each one of us has an inner experience we, that's the only experience we have science is concerned with describing that from the third person or objective point of view and unfortunately you cannot describe all first person point of view from the third person point of view mm-hmm. that is where science breaks down and the the religious or cultural our subjective experience is all that each of us really has That is the basis of our existence, and bringing science into understanding how to better deal with the personal, subjective, inner experience is what my studies have all been about, and that is really where the dividing line is here.
1: All right. Here's something that I would like to ask you about, and maybe you can answer it in a way I haven't been able to, but those of religious faith, deep Mm -hmm. religious faith, Mm -hmm. many of them view discussion of UFOs, discussion of people or um, others that may be out there as of the devil. Mm -hmm. How do you react to that?
2: Well, this was... I I grew up in a fundamentalist tradition. I tell the story in my book about my mother who was healed uh, amazingly in uh, one of these powerful things. uh, Healing moments is very much the way uh, jesus is supposed to have healed people only the interesting part was this fellow was a buddhist shaman and he did a pretty marvelous job of uh, healing my mother and she subsequently started thinking about it what and did i she, describe this in the book by the way what did she suffer she had glaucoma, glaucoma. <clears throat> and was very surely going blind she wore thick by the time this happened she wore very thick coke bottle glasses and was legally blind without them and uh she was healed and see, broke an <clears throat> interesting story dropped her glasses on the floor ground them under her shoe and said son praise the Lord I can see drove wow. home without her glasses 300 miles by herself and if I were to say the devil did that well just to let me finish the story she <laughs> called me a week later and said son was this man a Christian and I said oh Jesus no mother I'm sorry he wasn't the next day she had to put her glasses back I had to go get new glasses her belief system Wow. Was so strong. Wow! That since she couldn't accept a Buddhist shaman healing I un- her, I understand she oh. rejected the healing. Now, interestingly enough, ten years later when she passed away, <clears throat> she still hadn't had an operation because it was pretty risky back in those days. Uh, but she never went blind. Her eyesight improved over the years. The ten years remaining to her, hmm. so that. By the time she passed away, she didn't, she wasn't, uh, her glasses were a far weaker prescription than when this incident occurred.
1: Oh, Very that's, amazing
2: that's story. amazing. Got me started on all of this. Oh, it did? Well, that was a part, one of my earliest uh, experiences with consciousness and paranormal work, even before I ran into Uri Geller. Uri Geller came after that, and uh, I was had been studying with this shaman to see how in the world can this possibly happen. As a scientist, I wanted to understand it.
1: Do some of your old colleagues come
2: to you and say, Edgar, what are you doing? Yep. They do? The <laughs> fact is, they did uh, right after the experiment in space. Many of them uh, came in, closed the door, looked around nervously and said, tell me about it.
3: Uh-huh. As
2: it's been happening for 20-some years. And so you just told them about it?
1: Right. Well, I'll tell anybody that. asked. forward, obviously. Yeah. Um, there was a report last night doctor. Last night, scientists it it says, are now calculating that asteroid 433 uh, known as Eros uh, will wander into Earth's orbit. Now, it's not a minor little uh, asteroid. It is the size of Manhattan. Scientists are saying, eventually, uh, a collision with Earth is likely maybe not for a million years but, and that's a long time but uh, they, they calculate it will probably occur. Now, of course that's far larger than the one that supposedly took out the dinosaurs. Fifty percent probability. Fifty percent. Yeah. Half and a half. Well, all right, that's a big probability. That's a big probability. And it's also not the only asteroid out there. Now, yep. um, potentially one day something's going to come along that will do to us what was done to the dinosaurs. Quite possibly. Um, that's been a recent concern of scientists, so mm-hmm. it's a good reason to have a space program in it.
2: Yep. And you see, this illustrates what I'm talking about in our evolutionary path. We are indeed, these events can come under our conscious control by the time that might happen. See, it's not, uh, they say the probability is very, very low in the next 10,000 years, virtually zero. And within 10,000 years, we certainly would have the technology to divert an object like that mm-hmm. with uh, perhaps nuclear uh, nuclear power or some such technology that we could invent by the time that happens. So that illustrates the fact we could bring this sort of natural disaster within our ability to pervert it or change it. We may not be able to get to earthquakes by that time, but again, we might. But certainly it's feasible that we could divert an asteroid that was going to collide
1: with it. All right. There are many who have uh, p- prophets, people who claim to see. You mentioned earthquakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gordon Michael Scallion, he's a fellow I work with, brilliant guy. Uh, others who see great earth changes coming, uh, great great earthquakes coming. And indeed, I look at our society right now. We're dealing with a story this morning of a six-year-old who may have or is uh, alleged to have planned the murder of a 30-day-old child, this sort of thing. Events socially, economically, politically seem to be in rapid deterioration and mm-hmm. events appear to be quickening, uh, yep. geologic events uh, as well. Have you looked yep. at that?
2: Well, yes, I have and I just described I part of this in the book. Uh, I don't know that geologic events are accelerating, uh, but certainly, well, in the sense that weather events, if they're influenced by the ozone layer, if they're influenced by the, the uh, global warming, the greenhouse effect, those can be traced to human activity. Uh, And if we can trace it to human activity, then yes, it's accelerating because every measure of human activity has a period of doubling now that is less than a human lifetime. And it's the first time that's happened in all human history. Exactly. So it's bringing, it's what I'm saying, it's bringing all of these events are coming under human control. And it's because we're so numerous, our technology is so powerful, and it requires us now to rethink this whole issue of who are we, how did we get here, what's our future, where are we going, why and how.
1: Well, whether you believe in a creator or you believe that our Earth is reacting to what is being done to it, there are a lot of people who believe, and I may be one of them, that the Earth uh, is in fact in some way, maybe perhaps just some natural way, reacting to um, uh, to our presence or the changes we're bringing to earth. Well, I happen to
2: be one of them, too. You do, And that's exactly the sort of model I describe in my book, that uh, uh, this is an interactive, self-organizing system that we're talking about. And you push on it here, and the effect comes out over there right. in ways we don't really quite understand yet. Mm-hmm. And that's precisely what we must do, is to take responsibility for and understand the consequences of our behaviors because we're doing some things that are quite reminiscent of the lemmings rushing toward the sea.
1: <laughs> exactly. I'm uh, politically, in a lot of ways, conservative. But, Me too. But uh, NASA has measured, in recent years, the ozone depletion. Mm-hmm. And I find it very difficult to be in denial regarding an 8 to 10% drop over North America, for example, and the size of the hole. Do you generally believe these measurements are accurate?
2: Absolutely the question here is not are the measurements accurate the question is the meaning and the interpretation and the evidence continues to mount that these are indeed man-made uh, events and that they're having a deleterious effect upon our whole ecological system it's affecting the food chain uh, the, the, mm-hmm. the measurements are showing that it's affecting the food chain clear down at the level of the newts the frogs the uh, life cycle of fishes and so forth which eventually works its way up to affect us. So we should be watching these indicator species these... Very, very carefully and recognizing that very likely we're causing the problem
1: As we take down the forest, the rainforest uh, and as we venture into places we've never been before, we seem to be getting more Ebola's, more mad cow diseases, more Mm -hmm. viruses that we can't explain and Mm -hmm. can't deal with Mm -hmm. More of the same thing,
2: Doctor? Mm hmm. More of the same thing. Nature has a way, and I think my model that I present in this book it goes a long way toward helping us understand how this takes place. Uh, and essentially, nature is an, an evolving, intelligent organism. We don't think of it as an organism due to our scientific history. We think of it as inanimate particles. That's right. But uh, the Lovelock. Gaia hypothesis that everything is interconnected and interrelated more like an organism is a, probably a more productive way of thinking about nature. Closer to the Native American model. It's, it's very close to the, uh, to the Native American model and virtually all of the early models. Hmm. Yeah, and, if, and I think we will find it very productive if we continue to expand uh, develop that model of the interconnectedness of things and how everything relates to each other. And the fact that these effects take place is hardly disputable. It is the meaning or the interpretation that is in question here.
1: Um, all right. Oh, that's fascinating. I um, do you, Do you think, given the direction that you see and I see, uh, we're headed toward a, a good outcome, or without change, a catastrophic outcome.
2: Well, without change, it can be very catastrophic. But that is precisely the point. With change, with human awareness, with human willingness to take responsibility for some of these actions, then the outcome can be very uh, uh, very beneficial. What the futurist is looking for is sustainable processes. And right now, we're creating processes that are not sustainable. All right. A lot of my writing right now is on sustainability.
1: Good. Doctor, hold on. His writing is entitled The Way of the Explorer, and he's making you an offer this morning that I'm sure you can't refuse. I'm going to send off my 35. That's the name of uh, Dr. Mitchell's book, The Way of the Explorer, and he's willing to send you an autograph dedicated copy an autographed copy, I would grab this up. Uh, And the way you get it is send $35, check, money, order, cash, whatever. Really, you shouldn't send cash. Uh, To P.O. Box 6728, that's Post Office Box 6728, Lake Worth, that's two words, Lake Worth, Florida, 33461. And I'll do that uh, one more time. The Way of the Explorer, $35. The Post Office Box 6728, Lake Worth, Florida, 33461. When we come back, we'll begin to take a few calls. And by the way, uh, to, to my very, very good friend at Gateway, the answer is absolutely yes. Private message. We'll be right back. Neil Armstrong at the White House July 20th 1994 there are great quote there are great ideas undiscovered breakthroughs available to those who can remove one of truth's protective layers there are places to go beyond belief that doctor was what Neil Armstrong said and the, the, that part of the that lo- part of the line to those who can remove one of truth's protective layers seems awfully suggestive mm-hmm
2: Yeah, we do have a way, the way we organize information in our mind-brain, we have a way of protecting ourselves from shocking ideas. Uh, And if we want to be ultra, ultra cautious, we just let shocking new ideas kind of float over our heads and we don't buy into them. Yes. And that's one of nature's ways, all right?
1: All right, this is something people have always asked. A lot of the film and video that was taken on the moon... A lot of the film and video that's been taken in space, for that matter, never seems, according to my faxer from Memphis, to show stars. And Mm. people have always wondered why. It shows the blackness of space, but you Mm. never see the stars. Any any thoughts?
2: Sure. That's because uh, if you squeeze the shutter down in order so that you get some definition of the thing you're looking at, you have excluded the starlight, which is much fainter. But if you were to... uh, uh, Focus away from the sun and away from reflective light, open the shutter up, you won't see the stars. It's
1: absolutely same, true. same thing
2: is true on the lunar surface. Uh, if you look through our lunar surface telescope from the lunar module, you saw stars very, very nicely. But on the lunar surface, if you look out, you should see stars, but the reflective light is bright enough that your eye shutter squeezes down and your eyeball squeezes down, you don't see them unless you're very well shielded. And certainly on your camera, if you're going to catch the definition on the surface, you've got to shut the, close the shutter and you exclude the stars.
1: Well, I can tell you that's true, because I, I not long ago the shuttle came back uh, returning to Earth, and here in the desert we got a beautiful look at it very early in the morning, about mm-hmm. 4 o'clock in the morning. I went out with my camcorder, which is, you know, maybe yep. one or two lux, of good camcorder, and uh, it began as a great orange glow in the west, And grew and then suddenly shot across the horizon with a big kaboom. Mm -hmm. And I thought I got it, and I didn't get a doggone thing on my camcorder.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Not enough light there. Not enough light there, exactly. Well, it's amazing how sensitive the eye is. Uh, You know, we did a a wonderful experiment coming back from the moon in which we put eye shades on, uh, darkened the cabin, and then looked. And sure enough, we got meteor trails flashing across the eyeball. Which were gamma rays, tiny oh, really? little energetic solar particles, flashing across the tissue of the eye, Oh my. just like a meteor flashes across the sky, and the optic nerve is sensitive, sensitive enough to pick up that single photon.
1: Were there many worries, doctor, that something the size of, you know, a pebble or even a grain of sand would impact a spacecraft at sure. high velocity?
2: And that was all. That that was um, uh, all part of the computation of how thick the spacecraft was and so forth <clears throat> and sure during um, uh, during periods of high solar uh, sunspot activity we shouldn't be in space, not because of meteor particles but because of the Radiation. high en- energy that could penetrate and damage our bodies and there is always a possibility that a uh, high velocity particle could fracture a spacecraft cabin, sure Very low probability, but it's
1: there. All right. Uh, Let's take a few phone calls, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. Go ahead. All right. Uh, Here we go. On the first-time caller line, you're on the air with Dr. Mitchell. Hi.
0: Hi, Art. Uh, This is Mary from Pioche, Nevada. Yes. Uh, Dr. Mitchell, uh, Mm -hmm. someone was listening to you when you came on the air this morning, and he worked with you on the ESP experiment. Can Can you use your ESP now and tell me who it was? I
2: haven't any idea who it was. Uh, I can tell you if it's true if you tell me who it is, however.
0: Uh, Olaf Johnson.
2: Uh,
0: yes, well, From- o-
2: Olaf is indeed the one uh, that uh, knew about it. He was involved, that's quite true. Well, and he also uh, let the press know, and that uh, got it all out in the public, that's right. Oh. There well, you are, so, man. He
0: was listening to you this morning when you came on, mm-hmm. and... Uh, he he was hoping that he
2: could talk to you well if he can
1: get through he can talk to dr mitchell uh would you would you have words for him have you had words for him uh, regarding his letting the press know about it uh
2: well it was uh, we'd hoped that that wouldn't happen it did uh, cause a few difficulties in uh, keeping this within the scientific genre instead of a sensational sensational genre and uh, But we did publish, you know, Dr. Ryan published the results, and everything works out the way it's supposed to, so I can't be too frustrated with uh, Olaf on that regard, but it would have been helpful if we would announced it in a little more uh, measured way. You're not unhappy you did it. Oh, good heavens, no, because it did indeed show us that what we were experiencing works exactly the same way in space as it does here. And subsequent subsequent experiments in the laboratory have shown us that we don't have a space uh, we don't have a, um, a inverse squared effect like we do with with other electro with electromagnetic uh, effects that it is truly a non-local effect we're dealing with. Mm-hmm.
1: All right, uh, east of the Rockies, you're on the air with Dr. Edgar Mitchell. Where are you, please? Kansas City. Kansas City. All
4: right, Dr. Mitchell, honored yep. to speak with you. The I'm question sorry? I have for you is. Um, you speak a lot about spirituality and you speak about that people will not be so paranoid in the future with what they find out from what you believe we will find out. Uh, Do you see, are you, do you have a religious feeling? I mean, do you believe that there is a higher being controlling us?
2: I don't use the word being. I interpret it quite differently than that. Uh, I work with the idea of the god within rather than the god without in other words i consider the whole universe as divine uh, intelligence that we must as i write in my book that we scientists uh must rethink the problem that that the gods do exist they're throughout the universe and i say to the theologian your gods are too small <laughs> that The whole universe is in the divine experience, and we just merely need to change the way, subtle way we think about it a little bit, and it all fits, as far as I'm concerned. So how would you explain life after death, or is there? Well, that's a lengthy one. uh, Read the book, and I do touch on that. I approach this from the point of view of energy and information, that it's a very natural thing that's (laughs) taking place, that... uh, the information representing human life, or the experiences of human life, are indeed recorded, are indeed preserved, is a better word. I call it the giant hard disk in the sky facetiously. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we now have a quantum mechanical mechanism, which we're writing about and studying right now, as to how that takes place. We have a pretty good handle, a pretty good theory on what's
1: happening here. Doctor, I've always personally explained it by just believing that uh, creation, however it occurred, and a creator not necessarily at all mutually exclusive. And that's right. That, that's right. There's I, no I totally reason the hand, the hand of uh, the creator could not have molded and started all this on its way.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's like the, the details of the Big Bang. The details that we're talking about here are so fine that they become a little bit moot. But the fact is... Uh, this is a creative, organizing, intelligent universe. And the details of its beginning, we still don't quite grasp, but uh, perhaps we will in
5: the future. Hmm.
1: West of the Rockies, you're on the air with Dr. Edgar Mitchell. Good evening. Oh,
5: cool. Hi, this is Matt from Idaho. Hello, Matt. Hey, I can make a hobby of this. This is the second uh, moonwalker I've had, uh, talked to. So, Hello, who,
1: who else did you talk to? Uh,
5: Buzz Aldrin on Larry King's show. Very good. Back about a year ago. Anyway, I, uh, I don't really have a question per se, other than uh, just uh, a little personal experience that I had. As far as uh, Dr. Mitchell, when you talk about you know the experience of, of the oneness and whatnot, um, back in 1988, I was standing on the shore of uh, Jackson Lake, Grand Teton Lodge, uh, Grand Teton Park, and it was a perfectly smooth lake on a on a cloudless, beautiful night. And I was standing there. The whole lake was like a mirror. And all of a sudden, I got. It's, it's really hard to explain. It's like you said. But if you if you do experience it, you'll never forget it. And just, yeah, that's
2: exactly the point. The, it's, sense, it,
5: the yeah. experience is sometimes
2: ineffable. But once you have experienced it. uh You never forget it, and it's very hard sometimes to explain to someone else unless they've had the same experience. Then you don't need to explain
5: it. Yeah, about the only thing I could say is that uh, about the closest I could come to it is like it was almost like every every single cell in my brain um, just all of a sudden at once understood the whole thing. Just for a second.
2: In the book, in my book, I described this. Uh, the classical mystical experience is described in the literature as Samadhi. This comes out of the Sanskrit, the ancient language of mysticism uh, and I describe this in the book as when the entire brain body is in resonance with the zero point field, and it provides a sense of ecstasy, a sense of connectedness, a sense of uh, of this ineffable experience that you 're trying to describe, and which I try to describe uh, equally and effectively. Uh, <clears throat> <laughs> but there is apparently now a physical explanation for this. And we must ask ourselves, why did nature provide these feelings at all? And, of course, I go into that one in the book, too. All right. Thank you, Matt. Uh,
1: let's let's go into this one. Let's see if you can handle this one. Uh, have you done any thinking about the, the nature of the soul? Somebody asked you about life after death. In other words, are we more than the sum total of our biological <clears throat> parts? Yeah.
2: That's where this information comes from. A way of looking at it, this is a metaphor, this is a way to look at it, is that the sum total of our experiences can be called information. Everything before now is just the information about what we've experienced. In other words, uh, your life is information that you remember. In other words, everything in your mind right now is just a memory from the past.
3: Sure.
2: So, if we say that that memory, that information is coherent, that there is a way that it is preserved, that is about as good a scientific description of the soul as one can come up with. And we now have a mechanism for how that is preserved and carried forward. That's what I'm working on at the moment, and uh, it's a testable hypothesis. Uh, science is going to be able to deal with this uh, very, very shortly. You believe that we will begin to get a grasp on it, actually? I think we're doing so right now. I'm working with a number of scientists in Europe and here in the United States, including my good friend Hal Putoff that I worked with for years, Uh, and we're all batting these ideas back and forth. And it goes to the nature of holography. In other words, one of the things in physics that we're all familiar with now is a hologram or a, hol- a holograph. Sure. Uh, <clears throat> it's two dimensional and three dimensional. And it turns out that the brain constructs its images uh, much in the same way holograms are constructed. And it also turns out this may be nature's way of creating its coherence, its resonance, this interconnectedness we're talking about. Now, we're getting a little heavy for. A early morning show, but uh, that's probably going to be my next book as we try to explain this in lay terms.
1: Fascinating. Um, well, okay, we are the sum total of our experiences and maybe more. We're now entering an age where all kinds of memory and computer tricks are possible and storage yep. and speed are increasing of CPUs. Will the day not come when... <clears throat> information may be exchanged between biological entities and machines, uh, or, or at least, uh, I guess what we call machines now, may become part biological
2: themselves. Well, I kind of question that, because, uh, and this, this is a central point, so you can't be too adamant about it, but it's the fact that the inner experience of a silicon chip is probably quite different than the inner experience of a carbon-based brain. Mm -hmm. So it's not likely that uh, we will have androids that are very good humans. It is because of this subtle difference in non-locality or inner experience, which goes to our intuition, our ESP, etc., etc., all of which we humans experience because of the particular nature of our carbon-based mind-brain, spirit, if you will, which is somewhat different than a silicon uh,
1: silicon uh, entity. It is, but there are people who talk of biologically based or hybrid uh, uh, computers of the future. <clears throat> it,
2: quite, it is possible that we can do that, that uh, certainly sophisticated uh, computer technology, but there will be certain differences, and I, it's obviously much too early to tell how far we can go with
1: that. It A lot of it, I guess, depends on the nature of awareness. Um, what what awareness?
2: Keyword. You, yeah. just, you just hit the keyword, Art. Yes. Uh, awareness, and this is what I describe in my book, that awareness is a fundamental attribute of nature, of the matter in nature. That if you start to examine awareness closely, uh, as we we in science used to think, that it is a product of our evolved, energetic uh, molecules. It turns out, you just can't get there from here, that awareness has to be indigenous to nature itself.
3: Hmm.
2: Now, our mentality, our ability to think, to reason, to reflect, to be self-aware, yeah, that's probably uh, due to our evolutionary path, but awareness itself probably is not. At least that's the thesis I put forth.
1: Fascinating, so you, you you think we in all probability will not actually get to uh, awareness, and if we do, then we're we're getting toward
2: the core of it all and
1: I, I, I have to wonder
2: I, if we should even be there well, i don 't know whether we shouldn't be there, I think we have to understand it, but I believe that understanding awareness and volition, awareness and volition go together in my model. they are right at the core of the question when we understand awareness and volition we're probably right at the central crucial issue Fascinating.
1: uh... doctor i have held you now for two hours i have one hour of the program left and <laughs> uh... if you are up to it i would hold you or if you wish to rush off to breakfast i know it's about six o'clock in the morning there
2: well let me get a refinish my teacup, and i'll stay with you a little bit if you like because i well, have enjoyed talking with her.
1: absolutely folks. excellent all right um... please go right ahead and do that in the meantime I'll begin to tell everybody how to get your book once again, all right?
2: Very
4: good.
1: So go get some tea, and we'll hold you another hour. My guest is uh, Apollo 14 astronaut Dr. Edgar Mitchell. This is a priceless opportunity, and uh, we will lay more heavily on the phones in this final hour. He has written a book. It's called The Way of the Explorer. That's a good title, isn't it? The Way of the Explorer. Or otherwise to go where no man has gone before. Hmm. Anyway, if you would like an autographed copy of his book, it really is a rare opportunity—an autographed copy of his book, dedicated. Uh, to, I guess supply the uh, the verbiage you would like. He's willing to do that. He's going to be signing a lot of books. To get it, you uh, send thirty-five dollars to Post Office Box. 6728 6728 Lake Worth that's two words Lake as in that which holds all that water and Worth as in Fort Worth, Texas but not Texas so Lake Worth, Florida zip code 33461 let me get that to you again, I know a lot of you uh, are rushing for pens, this will be a priceless opportunity and probably a $1 one-time chance to get an autographed copy like this, The Way of the Explorer. It is $35. It will be less in the stores, but of course you will not have a personally autographed version, and that's something to have as a keepsake. Post Office Box 6728 Lake Worth, Florida 33461 And uh, I would like to thank you all for uh, participating. If you would like to either speak with uh, Dr. Mitchell or you're welcome to send a fax with a question. Let me give you my fax number. Here in Nevada, it is area code 702-727-8499. Now, I ask that you hold it to three pages, please. No more than that. I prefer one page if you can do that. Uh, a faxed question at area code 702 727 8499 nine. and so there you have it uh, an evening with somebody who's been to the moon it's always been a dream of mine to be able to ask these kinds of questions to somebody who's done something that i uh dr mitchell said i may but i suspect i may not ever get to the moon in fact that is a good question i suppose when we come back here in a moment to ask whether any of us may have an opportunity to go you never know I I never thought that I would uh, get to fly at Mach 2 Plus, but uh, I did. I got to go to Paris in the Concorde, so who knows? Maybe an opportunity will present itself, and I will get to go to the moon, yet. Just that I'm not betting on it. So when we've got somebody here who's actually been, it is indeed a priceless opportunity. More of it coming up in a moment from the high desert. You're listening to the American CBC Radio Network. I'm Art Bell. Don't move! All right, now back to Dr. Edgar Mitchell, and uh, Dr. I presume you've got some tea in hand.
2: Yes, I uh, have my herbal tea and I'm ready to go.
1: All right, um, we have done a number of programs on uh, something called HARP. I, I'm sure I bet you're familiar with HARP. It's up in Alaska, and it is ostensibly a project to heat the ionosphere, uh, in effect, boring a hole through the ionosphere. Uh, in order to study radio or improve radio propagation, ostensibly, or to look for caverns or bunkers uh, beneath the earth, in other words, to geographically map what's below the surface of the earth. Uh, There are a lot of people concerned about harp. Dr. Nick Begich in Alaska wrote a book called Angels Don't Play This Harp. Do you know anything about the
2: uh, angelic nature or lack of it of harp? I'm sorry, I You've sprung a new one on me. That one I'm not familiar with.
1: Uh huh. Well, okay, that's worth looking into, believe me. They're going to uh be pouring billions of watts in a, with a very directional uh uh antenna uh toward the ionosphere, and it's an interesting project and you, you don't know anything about
2: it. No, but I can say if it's billions of watts, uh, that's an awful lot of energy and uh, it should be looked at very carefully. Mm-hmm. That
1: would be my reaction
2: in- as well. Energy energy in those amounts, uh Need to be studied carefully before you do it.
1: Very good. Uh, on the first-time caller line, you're on the air with Dr. Edgar Mitchell. Good evening, morning, actually.
4: Hello. Hi. Nice to both of you, uh, uh, it's a great honor to uh, speak to you, uh, yeah. Dr. Mitchell. And I Thank had you. a question. Uh, what was the most unexpected event that occurred during the Apollo 14 mission? Huh.
2: Uh, <clears throat> well, two two things. Uh, On the lunar surface, it was the difficulty of our uh, navigation uh, on a presumably relatively flat surface, finding out it wasn't so flat after all. Um, And in general, it was this perception of Earth from space, which um, was overwhelming to many of us, of um, seeing this awesome planet we call Earth. Mm-hmm. and getting this new perspective that we're talking about, the epiphany, the insight, the wow, the aha, mm-hmm. uh, that, that to me was the unexpected, uh, overwhelming.
4: Did it seem surrealistic to you, like, am I really here?
2: Mm. Not quite surrealistic um, so much as isn't it amazing that we react in this way? Isn't it amazing that here we knew, we know, the earth is this little ball it looks like a globe it's moving around a rather average Sun in a rather average galaxy way out on the spiral arm we knew all of that intellectually but when you experience it viscerally Mm -hmm. something different takes place
4: I'll bet it does
2: and that is precisely what got me on this whole path of uh, that I've been on for the last 25 years what is it that's taking place? Why is it that we experience this?
4: All
2: right, where, where
1: are you calling from, sir? Uh,
4: Alamo, California.
2: All right, excellent.
1: Thank you very much. And, uh, Dr. Mitchell, how much can you see? Now, w- w- with the kind of mission you were on, um, how much detail, when you're in orbit, can you see uh, on the Earth? You
2: said you saw the forests burning. Well, no, you can see that. It depends on how far out you are, of course. Uh, if you are at the distance of the moon, well, you can see the, the uh, you the uh, continents, provided they're not obscured by cloud, cloud cover. Mm-hmm. You can see uh, the deserts, the reddish color of the deserts, the green of the great jungles and so forth, the blue of the water. Uh, detail is a little more difficult to perceive can see magnificent detail from 100 miles up, and with our modern uh, surveillance devices, you can read license plates from space, as you
1: probably know. Yes, I do. Uh, The whole series, the CAGE series of satellites, uh, I do believe they can look down and read license Mm -hmm. numbers, a little unnerving. All right, um, Wild Card Line, you're on the air with Dr. Edgar Mitchell. Good morning. Good morning. Hello. uh,
5: Dr. Mitchell, good morning. morning.
1: Where are you, sir?
5: I'm in Eugene, Oregon. Okay, uh, name's Andy and I just uh I
2: wanted to know uh how the doctor felt about uh or if he was familiar with Doctor Robert Monroe's work. Uh I knew about, about very well when he was alive, yeah. Oh really? Really. Uh astounding books, uh, uh out of body experience and far journey. And I just wanted to get your feelings on, on his discoveries on his uh out of body, you know, his interdimensional travels and, and uh well, the way I explain it in my book, and I, d- I go into this also, that you tie it together with the remote viewing experiences,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and it's merely a matter of detail and specificity, and again, the inner experience from the detail of Bob and Rose work, the so called out of body or astral projection, gives the experience of being there, but we can't find anything that goes anywhere. What you're doing is bringing, apparently, bringing the information here. In other words, information is everywhere, and you're simply focusing it from a point of view. So nothing has to go anywhere in order to perceive that information. Another way of looking at it is that we're here and everywhere simultaneously. Now, that's a tough one to get around. Yes, it is. But that seems to be the best description. In that uh, it is it is simply a transformation of the viewpoint of information that exists and information apparently exists everywhere simultaneously.
1: I had the honor of interviewing Dr. Monroe before he died, mm-hmm. and uh, I found his um, information to be absolutely captivating. Are you? Do you believe that I or that any or that a human being sufficiently trained um, and disciplined could take roughly the same trip you took without uh, all the expense uh, Absolutely.
2: <laughs> you yep, do yep, yep. Fact is, part of the work we did in the laboratory uh, was with several psychics, ingo swan a very noted one uh, <clears throat> was able to do this and to bring back information from some of the larger and outer planets that was only verified later by nasa flyby mm-hmm. so Some of the work in remote viewing precisely gathers that sort of uh, information. Now, it turns out that uh, the detail can be quite good. It can also be misleading sometimes because we do filter that through our own brain body, our own information mechanism. But with good training and putting aside biases, quite often the information is startlingly accurate. Fascinating. Uh, Moon rocks. Everybody
1: would like to ask about moon rocks, and I've got Mm -hmm. a bunch of facts here. You brought back, and the Apollo series brought back, many, many, many rocks. Mm -hmm. Did we find anything in those moon rocks that surprised or shocked us in any way, or Mm -hmm. did we just find rocks?
2: Well, we found rocks, and we found that they are... uh of course the same minerals that we find on Earth, because the periodic table of elements is the same everywhere in the universe, but the combinations and the processes that form the rocks are clearly quite different, which is what we set out to discover. What are the processes on the moon that are different than the processes on Earth? And by and large, they're described by the the lack of the lighter elements, like oxygen, uh, hydrogen, all of which boiled off very early in the, the lunar process because of the reduced gravity, the smaller size, sure. and they were present here on Earth. But what they did was give us clues as to how the uh, moon was formed, which in turn gives us clues as to how our own Earth came about.
1: What is the best theory about how the moon was formed? Was it from Earth? There are people who feel it was early on from Earth.
2: I will. I will. I'm going to have to beg off a little bit. I haven't read the most recent literature, <clears throat> but they were formed at about the same time, mm-hmm. early in the process, uh, and apparently uh, from the same giant mix. And but were I'm, I'm maybe a little tentative here. I I believe that they have had a long, long history of separate as being independent entities, but they have been. Uh, uh, May have been in conjunction at one time, there's one theory, and I'm a little confused here because I haven't studied it in quite a number of years. There was one theory that uh, the great part of the Pacific Ocean is a place where, like Siamese twins, they were separated at one point indeed I'm not sure whether that theory is held up or not but um uh, and I'll have to beg off of it without reading the the more most recent literature. All
1: right. Uh, Dear Art, please ask Dr. Mitchell about crop circles. What's his opinion? That's something I know you know, Linda Howe. Uh, Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, I think she interviewed you for this coming Dreamland this Sunday. Um, What do you think about these crop circles? They are (laughs) odd. Uh,
2: Any theories? Well, they are odd, and I'm not enough of an expert uh, on those, nor have I studied them personally to be able to offer anything that's very valid. Excuse me. And certain of them certainly have already been... Uh, described or admittedly created by hoax. That doesn't mean we all have. And I, I guess I have to remain open-minded on it and say I don't know the answer. Let's uh, get some more data here. All
4: right. Uh,
1: east of the Rockies, you're on the air with Dr. Edgar Mitchell. Where are you, please?
4: Uh, yes, hello. Northern Florida. Uh, well, college student there. <laughs> yes, sir. Had a late, late of hours there. Indeed. um glad the... Uh, Affiliates hanging on there, bless them. Uh, Doctor Mitchell, you in in the course of the uh, uh, the interview there, uh, uh, well, the, the zero point. Well, Mr. Hoagland referred to it as the hyperdimensional physics, etc. Is that um, uh, I have well, knowing a member of the space program for many years now, going um, into great detail, is that. Um, The spiritual, to be quite honest here, if you gentlemen would like to expound, especially yourself, Dr. Mitchell, uh, Mr. Bell, you're quite up there as well, is that uh, what I have been uh, somewhat educated to is the spiritual, the truly the spiritual uh, endeavor is something that we are truly uh, expounding upon here. And the scientific is truly... Uh, just say just a well a tad of a notch below that in a way so to speak
1: I'm not sure that I fully understand the nature of that question but I think he's saying do you hold the spiritual um, above the the scientific uh, in terms of eventual answers
2: no as a matter of fact the thesis here is that we're in a natural universe and that by and large it is explainable and knowable and that if it is not, that will show up, too. Uh, But so far, it seems to be explainable and knowable, and certainly what we call the spiritual is an intimate, personal part of our existence. Mm -hmm. But I don't find it um, never-never-land, supernatural, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, anything any more hierarchically above or below. I don't use those terms, above, below, and in a hierarchical sense. It just is. And it's a part of the universe that we experience. And our, uh, our hope is to understand it better.
1: You seem to be uh, very much in sympathy with those who suggest that if the space program is moving slower right now, that's no big deal. Let's get it together here and then worry about space later. Is that about right?
2: Yeah. We're, we've got lots of time we've got about 5 billion years as long as this sun is still burning out there uh, which is about its lifetime and right now we've got some major problems here on Earth we will eventually go on back to to the moon, we will go on to Mars we will go on our destiny I believe is to explore this universe and we'll do that in due course right now we better get our act together
1: how worried was NASA that you might bring... I know there was a period of isolation when you came back. Were they concerned that you might bring back a little bug or a virus or a something on, that you would step on and yep. cling to you on the moon? How long were you isolated when you came back? Well, we had three three
2: weeks, and we were the last flight to be post-flight quarantined. We were also the first flight to be pre-flight quarantined, so <laughs> we had a double dose of it, both before and after. We were. Uh, Why the pre-flight? Was that to avoid... Well, that was a... because on Apollo 13, Ken Mattingly was exposed to Charlie Duke's measles, sorry, his son's measles. Oh, that's right. And it uh, got bumped from the flight because of it, which, as it turned out, uh, can help get them back. So, as Jim Lovell says, they were blessings come in disguises. Mm. But um, yeah, we were we were pre-flight quarantined to prevent disease from getting into space, and we were post flight quarantined to keep space disease from getting here. It turns out there wasn't any.
1: Obviously, since you were slated for 14, uh, when the problems occurred 13, I'm sure it had your attention.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, doctor, how close was it? Well, it was darn close. See, Apollo 13 was originally my flight. Um, when Alan Shepard came on the crew, we were slated to replace uh, Gordon Cooper.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, we were slated to do the Apollo 13 flight. and. <laughs> NASA headquarters uh, suggested that since Alvin had not been in training for some time, he ought to take a little more time to train, and negotiated a crew switch with Jim Lovell's crew, which was then Apollo 14. So we switched crews and uh, switched missions. They got the bad bird, and we got the good one. And that was kind of the break of the draw. Still, you must What were you doing Uh, when 13 was on the way back? Well, I was doing exactly, if you saw Apollo 13, I was doing exactly in the lunar module, Ken Mattingly was doing in the command module uh, learning how to fly that beast uh, as a lifeboat low power no power manually Uh, it's kind of like learning to take uh, your your sailboat on the open seas or let's say your dinghy on the open seas and turn it into a lifeboat to bring the major craft home was
1: it as frantic as depicted in Apollo 13
2: well I'm not sure frantic is the right high pressure intense
1: If Apollo 13 had ended in disaster instead of a miracle, virtually, Mm -hmm.
2: uh, would 14 have flown? Uh, That's a good question. Um, I don't know that it would have totally killed the program at that point, but it would certainly have been a major setback. Had we on Apollo 14 also messed up and not had a good mission, I think that would have definitely killed the
1: program. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, West of the Rockies, you're on the air with Dr. Edgar Mitchell. Good morning. Army, Air Force, or Navy. As you know, uh, Doctor, ma'am, hold on a sec. Uh, they, they really did come out with fairly recent information saying, well, we lied, it really wasn't a balloon. Uh, the true story is it was a different kind of balloon.
3: Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, that's,
1: that's the new story. Yeah, the new story. All right, ma'am, uh, you have another question?
0: Yes, I do. Uh, Dr. Mitchell, do you have any knowledge of a crash at Aztec?
2: Of what? A crash at aztec I'm sorry, I do not I think I've heard of that incident, but I have no personal knowledge
5: at you all. Know. Okay, thank you very much.
1: All right, but again, you on balance uh, are of the personal opinion that roswell that something did happen, something did crash
2: at Roswell <coughs> oh, I, th- I think there's no doubt but something did crash. Um, Art, I have to say, I am not an expert in any of these particular I have followed other people are professional investigators i have looked at the overall evidence i have listened to testimony from very high-placed people with first-hand experience whom I find quite credible but i do not consider myself an expert in this area at all all right doctor hold on um... doctor
1: edgar mitchell apollo fourteen astronaut back in a moment you're listening to the american cbc radio network Now, back to Dr. Edgar Mitchell. Doctor?
2: Hello
1: there. Hi. Um, Doctor, uh, my one... (laughs) A little earlier, we talked about whether I would ever have a chance to fly uh, as you flew or in any other way. I, I had one great experience, Doctor, and that was I flew in the Concorde. Uh, From this country to Paris. Heat machine? Oh man! At Mach two plus, and they let me go up into the cockpit at Mach two, and it was all very exciting. And I remember putting my hand on the window when we were doing about Mach two, and this thing was roaring along, and the window was so hot you couldn't hold your hand on it. That's the problem. Uh huh. And 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 you flew at
2: Mach. (laughs) I forgot how to convert it, but it's uh, just figure for a minute. Mach many. Uh, not many. 36,600 <laughs> feet per second. Oh, brother.
1: <laughs> uh, what kind of temperatures uh, during reentry are reached? Mm,
2: um, well, it's enough to ablate and melt the, the heat shield. It comes up to several thousand, but I don't remember the exact number. Several thousand? Several. Um, does it... I've got a piece of it right here on my desk. It's a very charred uh, core from the heat shield that uh, burns that phenol like uh,
1: block. very So without that heat shield, it's crispy critters.
2: Well, what is designed to melt away and carry the heat away, that's, that's the way it's designed, is to ablate or melt, and big globs of it burn off and go streaking by the window on the way back. God,
1: that must be weird. Yep. Yeah. Uh, to realize that uh, minus that, <laughs> that, that would be you burning off and going by the windshield.
2: Yeah, it, we, fortunately, we have a pretty good... Uh, uh, thermal control system, but it does start to warm up, and it has to work.
1: Oh, I was going to ask that. Did it? Uh, in other words, it doesn't remain a constant pretty 70 degrees inside. No, it starts to warm up a little mm-hmm. bit, uh, but the thermal controls then take over and keep you reasonably comfortable. All right. Back to the phones we go. First time caller line. You're on the air with Dr. Edgar Mitchell. Hi.
0: Hi. I'm calling from Garden Grove. Good morning.
1: Garden Grove, California?
2: California. All right. Yeah, good morning. Dr. Mitchell, mm-hmm.
0: we're all pretty familiar with um, Neil
5: Armstrong's first words when he stepped onto the moon.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: What were yours?
2: <laughs> well, my first thought was, what am I doing here? <laughs> but it's, it's an awesome experience. It's absolutely wonderful if do, you're an explorer, and that's the way I consider myself.
5: Do you remember um, what you said, though? Your actual I, first
2: uh, word? No, I don't remember what I said. Uh, it was probably more. We can go back on the record and check it out. I've
5: oh, okay.
2: got the transcript right here. I just don't happen to remember exactly. <laughs> it was, it was, it was uh, more technical. It was more let's get on with it. Uh
0: uh-huh. How about that? the first night you
5: slept? Uh, what was your dream? Did you dream while you were on the moon? No, uh, it
2: was pretty fitful sleeping. Uh, it was what? I don't, it was fitful sleeping <clears throat> because we were anxious. Uh, we were tilted a little bit. We landed on a slope. And we had the feeling that we were tipping over. Now, we knew we weren't, but the bodily feeling, the sensation, was one of tipping over. So we caught ourselves wanting to peek out the window every once in a while to make sure we weren't. Uh, and, of course, we weren't, and we knew that. But it was a very strange feeling. It was a, not not a good night's sleep at all. When you leave
1: uh, the Earth, Doctor, and you, you leave the Earth's gravitational uh, effect, and you're suddenly weightless, can you explain to people who have probably always wondered what that feels like?
2: The best the best uh, simulation of it is underwater. If you're a scuba diver, uh, go underwater, ballast, weightless, uh, close your eyes so you don't see which way the bubbles go, mm-hmm. and remain motionless. That's the way it feels.
3: Uh-huh.
2: Or if you happen to be a pilot, you can uh, go up and do a ballistic trajectory, and let it kind of float like a rock floating through the, the sky, and you'll get the same feeling.
1: I've heard it described as one of falling
2: too. Falling. Well, that's what. Yeah, that's what happens. It's the same sensation as falling. falling. Did
1: you Did you have nausea, any illness, or did you just take to it like a fish to water?
2: Well, we conditioned uh, because some folks had had inner ear vertigo, disorientation. We went up and practiced in our T thirty eight trainers, uh, doing all sorts of aerobatic maneuvers to push ourselves right to the verge of sickness and vertigo and train the inner ear and so that we could control it
1: um... did you enter all this with any trepidation or great thought about it before you did it or was it just plunge ahead
2: hell yes i want to do this well my my uh... goal had been set for since nineteen fifty seven as i explained earlier And I think most of our class, where there were 19 of us selected in 1966, uh, most of our class had the feeling, you mean we get paid for doing this? This is wonderful. Uh, Yes, I know that feeling. We were really eager to to go do the job. Um, Yes,
1: but at that moment, when you were all up in that... uh, uh, a capsule up on top of that great big potential bomb there must have been a moment just before launch when you all looked at each other busy as you must have been we sort of looked at each other and said okay guys here we go knock on wood well
2: Stu now uh, deceased, good friend in command module pilot used to call those moments sweaty palms time yeah that's right and every time we would ignite the engines he'd say okay gentlemen it's sweaty palms time again because there's always that moment of apprehension is it going to work uh, this equipment had never been tested in space as you know it was yes. throwaway equipment once you use it you, it's done mm-hmm. and so each piece of equipment brand new and you always have that concern when you sh- start
4: it off is it going to work properly
1: um wildcard line you're on the air with Dr Edgar Mitchell hi
4: Yes, good morning, Edgar. I'm a retired Air Force officer who had the occasion about 20 years ago to invite um, Buzz Aldrin up to Nellis Air Force Base for mm-hmm. an award ceremony and hosted him for a couple of days. So I consequently got to talk to him at length. Mm-hmm. And while he was open to talking about his problems... And- Sir, there's something wrong You're with your, breaking your, up here. your Yeah, there's something
1: wrong
3: with your phone. He was,
4: he was um, reluctant to talk about his um, experiences and sightings of the UFOs was at that time and is there still a um, precondition to talking about those kind of encounters sites?
2: Well, we didn't have that. any of those encounters as far as I know including Buzz but um, uh, there may be things I don't know but I don't believe so.
1: Did, should, Buzz Aldrin, did Buzz Aldrin tell you he saw UFOs?
4: Yes he did he said there were uh, most of the astronauts had had, had some experiences with um, discs um, lights um, I'm
2: sorry, that is simply not true. That's
4: just not true. I don't know where you're getting your
2: information, but I'm sorry. How about his experiences in specific?
3: Well,
1: if if he's not aware of uh, Mr. Aldrin's experiences, uh, he can't comment on them, and as far as his are concerned, he said he had none, right? Right. So there you are. Uh, East of the Rockies, you're on the air with Dr. Edgar Mitchell. Good morning. Where are you, please?
0: Are you talking to me, Art?
1: It's you I'm talking to, yes. All
0: right. Good morning. I'm a long-time listener, It's this is the first time I ever called you. Where are you? I'm in uh, Galveston County, not too far from NASA down here. Oh, okay. I didn't know until the night that that you and I walked on the same ground. I was an Air Force medic at Lackland Air Force Base for four years.
1: Well, all they did to me at Lackland was give me eight weeks of hell.
0: <laughs> well, I'm also a ham radio
1: operator. Well all right then seventy
0: five meters.
1: There you are. We've got a lot in common then.
0: Yeah, let let me get, uh I, I've got something to talk about uh to, to the doctor there. We before he hits some this is a really interesting night art and uh, you're killing me, you keep me awake. <laughs> <laughs> uh I found out early in my teens that I was a psychic healer of sorts and uh, as I grew older it uh it uh I discovered a lot more about it and I did a lot of it and uh it, I never would charge anything for it and it got to where it was aggravating people would call me in the middle of the night and uh to go take care of back pains and neck chronic problems I'm talking about mm-hmm. and it kind of created some problems at home so about 10 or 12 years ago I just started just kind of just dropping away and uh, and not uh, uh you know more or less kind of going into denial with this thing and uh I'm very careful about who I do it with now and to, uh, who I uh, I I uh, I take care of their problems, but uh, I've been in 95% of the time I'm 100% effective, and and about 5% of the time I'm about 95% effective. So, mm-hmm. uh, my big question is, I I don't know where this comes from, and I never would charge anything for the uh, uh, for the gift, I guess you'd call it. Uh, I don't know where uh, my grandmother now was 100% Cherokee Indian, and my aunt was too, and they they had uh, all. Sorts of things, clairvoyance and everything
1: else. All right. Well, let's ask where it does come from, Doctor. Uh, it's, you it's, related the
2: experience with your mother. Yeah, it's the way we're built. We all have that capability. Now, not everyone is able to exercise it as effectively as this gentleman uh, can. It probably has a genetic component that allows us to manifest it. But it's really more the neuro- neural connections in the brain. We're we're now very convinced. Uh, and as a matter of fact, this is part of what we're trying to make some visuals uh, with uh, the North Tower Film Group on on these areas. Uh, we're now quite convinced that we can train people to do all of these things, particularly if we begin prenatally. Uh, hmm. The brain the brain is like any muscle in the sense that its capabilities you either use them or lose them, and it's amazing the number of capabilities that we have as very, very young children that because we don't exercise them or they are negated by doubting parents, uh, those neurological connections then are pruned off. Uh, nature does that, you either use them or lose them. But it turns out you can get them back, some of them, with arduous work uh, much later in life. So it's, it's they're not lost forever. But we all seem to have these rather amazing capabilities. I call them creative capabilities. It goes to the whole area of healing, psychokinetic stuff, the things that Uri Geller does, the, the healers that I worked with, the gentleman that's our caller. Uh, everybody has these capabilities latent. And I'm convinced that they're emerging. We will learn to use them better. They're a part of our right-left brain complex that uh, we can very quickly learn to use better if we put effort to it. Let's take the
1: example of your mother Mm -hmm. and the story you told us. Um, That healing, doctor, did that come to your mother from an external source, the healer, or did that come because your mother believed?
2: Both. It's the interaction of the two. Uh, the healing comes from within us. The body knows how to heal itself. We have to get out of the way, and quite often someone else can help us get out of the way. So we've got to get our mind out of the way. I think the actual energy itself is the, the basic energy comes from within the body, and the repository, the source of that energy, is the zero-point field. I think that more than likely, and this is speculative stuff, that probably the people that use acupuncture, the ancient Orientals that learned acupuncture, that the little acupuncture needles are probably uh, the mechanism for accessing the zero-point field. So they're, they're an energetic uh, mechanism.
1: That's fascinating. And it's
2: both. It is both. The healing comes from within ourselves, but an external healer helps us access it.
1: All right. Uh, west of the Rockies, you're on the air with Dr. Edgar Mitchell. Good morning.
5: Good morning, Art.
1: Where are you, sir?
5: I am in Rawling, Wyoming. All right. This question I'd like to pose It's kind of a multi-faceted question. I, me and a friend of mine discussed something uh, about uh, actual artificial intelligence. I'd like to know if uh, the government or he or a group of his, uh, his uh, comrades have been working on anything like this, artificial intelligence in the form like a cyborg or a robot.
1: Well,
2: we were actually discussing that a little earlier. Uh, Very briefly on that, uh, artificial uh, intelligence is just managing information. And we're being very, very successful at artificial ways or robotic ways or computerized ways to manage information. But uh, the real question is, what is the difference between the way the biological organism manages information and a computer chip? I maintain that there's always going to be a difference But uh, we're getting pretty sophisticated with our artificial intelligence.
1: We are, and it's uh, an interesting thing to wonder where where it's going.
2: Yeah, and we don't have an answer to that. It's just going to go where we can take it.
1: Uh, We're never really going to limit ourselves in terms of how far we go, are we? I mean, we're always going to have debates about whether we're getting in God's or the Creator's territory, but we're going there anyway, aren't we?
2: I think that's true. The question is... What is the value system, the moral system uh, that we evolved to guide our evolution? And it's very clear that we do not have the proper guidance uh, for our current technologies. We are way ahead in our technological capability of our understanding of morality and ethics and so forth.
1: That brings me to a very important point. Whether it's uh, the HARP project that I touched on a little while ago, or it's scientists doing medical experimentation uh, uh for example, and i I certainly don't necessarily object to it, but there was an experiment in San Francisco in which they attempted to inject a um, a baboon's immune system into a human being mm-hmm. uh, who had AIDS and virtually uh, destroyed his immune system and tried to substitute baboons and the scientists after they announced it, doctor, said, well, yes, there is some danger to humankind that some uh, virus uh, that was from the baboon may be introduced to human beings in this way. Some danger, but they went ahead and did it and sort of told us about it afterwards. So we are getting ahead of things in a lot of cases. Scientists are in areas where, to me, it's a little worrisome. You feel that, too?
2: Well, I feel it's very, very worrisome. I'm very concerned about... Uh, not understanding the implications of our decisions Uh, particularly uh, in genetic research in this sort of biological research uh, uh, you know these viruses are organisms too and they need to survive Mm -hmm. the the survival impulse runs throughout nature and nature is going to try to find a way each level to make itself survive we have to be quite careful about what we're doing here we have to invent, discover, a new way of looking at morality and ethics. And it derives from what is the nature of the universe that we're living in? Who are we really? And those questions need to matter. Um, Do you think
1: that the race between technology and our ability to control it morally or ethically is going to be lost, or are we going to catch up to it and uh, say to ourselves, now, wait a minute. Let's think a little bit before we do this.
2: I am the eternal optimist that uh, we, humankind, will come to our senses, recognize the problem, and deal with it. Do it. Will we have fits and starts and scare ourselves half to death and <laughs> uh, proceed along the course of the lemmings? Uh, certainly for a while. Uh, it goes by fits and starts. It's not a smooth path.
1: Doctor, but. we are we are utterly out of time, okay. um, and and so we're going to have to end it here. But um, I would like to say someday I would sure like to have you back again. Well,
2: maybe we can work that. All right. And it's been a pleasant being with you, Art.
1: Thank you. And uh, Doctor Mitchell, uh, I'm going to give you the honors. The honors here are just say good night, America. Good night, America. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Take care, Doctor Mitchell. Mm-hmm. Bye bye. All right. That's Doctor Edgar Mitchell and. Um, Apollo 14 astronaut, Dr. Edgar Mitchell. Thank you all. It has been a glorious night, as always. Dreamland Sunday, back with the syndicated program. Uh, Monday night, Tuesday morning. Thank you all from the high desert. Good night, America.